พุทธังธรรมังสังขังนะมะสังทุกวันนี้เป็นวันพุธของเดือนธันวาคมและเป็นวันที่ปกติเป็นวันที่เมื่อเรา reflect on an occasion where the Buddha gave a teaching known as the Awada Patimoka, and it's uh, quite a short teaching, only three verses. And this evening, I'd like to spend some time reflecting on one verse in particular. It's a very well known and Buddhist traditions and on first reading it or a casual glance at this four-line stanza, it doesn't look very complicated. Maybe looks even simplistic. However, uh, with a deeper investigation, it's a very profound teaching. One could even consider it a a template uh, for for living one's life. So, So this verse uh, recited in Pali. Some of you may be familiar with it. s a m b a p a p a s a k a r n a n g kusala sa upasampada satchita priyotvanang etang buddhana sasanang. Well, obviously I'll translate it into English. I think first we could consider it in reverse order, starting from the last line, and then. Look at it more deeply, going back down again. The last line of this stanza, "Etang Buddha Nasasanang," means this is the teaching of the Buddhas. And what's particularly noteworthy there is the plural. This is this is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And if it was the teaching of our Buddha alone, the Gautama Buddha, well, that's already great. That's already amazing. And Worthy of attention. However, it's mentioned that this is the teaching of all the Buddhas. Like the previous four Buddhas as well gave the same teaching. It's it's something that certainly is worthy of consideration and investigation of honouring. So that's the fourth line, and then working back up, the third line is Satchita p a r i y o t p a n a m which is Purifying the heart, and of course here we're not talking about the physical heart; we're talking about the heart of awareness, or consciousness, the purification of the heart. This is the this is the the ultimate work that, as Buddhists, we're engaged in. How do we how do we purify the heart? The purified heart, which is what the Buddha lived out of and expressed itself as perfect wisdom and perfect compassion. And that's our goal. We have we have faith in that, that possibility. We trust that that's available for human beings, the potential for realizing perfect wisdom and perfect compassion. However, most of us, most of the time, are living in a state of impure or obstructed awareness and. Obstructed by what? Obstructed by the the self-delusion. This, this 
monstrous sense of I that keeps getting in the way of everything. I want this. I don't want that. And the Buddha wasn't. There wasn't any delusion in the Buddha's awareness. The Buddha's heart was perfectly purified. And so this work of purifying the heart is recognizing the self-delusion for what it is. It's not always there. And children, when you're first born, there's no individuated sense of self. There's potentialities there. It takes several years, up to maybe about seven years, before you can have a conversation with this little person. And by that stage of life, there is a individuated sense of self, of I there, and and then we all tend to make the unfortunate mistake of believing that this is who and what I really am. From the time of birth, there's there's a being there. However, you wouldn't say that there's an individuated sense of self for quite a few years. And then somewhere along the line, around about seven years old, we fall into this trap of mistaking this condition, this constructed sense of I as who and what we truly are and we forget about the being and, and then we've got a lot of hard work ahead of us. <clears throat> First, accommodating this perspective of living life from an individuated sense of I, a separate I that's struggling to get what it wants and get rid of what it doesn't want. It's hard work. And then somewhere along the line, if we're fortunate, we come across some spiritual teachings which tell us that this limited way of being is not an obligation. In fact, it's a, it's a fundamental mistake, living out of the conditioned eye. And there is another way of living. So that's the work. And uh, we could refer to that, or I like to refer to that as the, the stage or practice of self-transcendence transcending, not getting rid of the sense of self, but transcending the self-delusion. Before that, and that's what the first two lines of this brief stanza are about, uh, uh, going in reverse order again, uh, line two, which says, cultivate that which is wholesome, and line one, which says, refrain from doing that which is unsuitable. Or literally what it says is, the word in Pali is papa. Sapa papa sakana, which means actually papa is, is quite a heavy word. It literally means evil. But refrain from doing that which is evil. Cultivate that which is wholesome. Now this stage of practice, initial stage of practice, is where we are preparing ourselves for what comes later for the purification, the work of purification. Just as, for instance, if you decide you're going to take on a serious adventure like climbing Mount Everest, for instance, of course you put in a lot of preparation in advance, physical preparation, emotional preparation, conceptual preparation, there's a lot of work on a lot of dimensions would go into preparing ourselves before embarking on the adventure. Likewise, on the spiritual adventure, before we 
really engage on that level of practice you could refer to as self-transcendence there is a lot of work to be done and that's what these first two lines are about refraining, learning to truly refrain from that which is unsuitable and cultivating that which is good as simple as it sounds it's not so easy to do however if we don't address this level of practice and and maybe some of us have the experience of barging ahead with excessive enthusiasm and say well I get that you know I know how to refrain I don't go killing people and you know and uh, I'm a good enough sort of guy so let's do the real thing this purification bring it on I want to do the purification practice Nibbana here we come well, there are such people around, and, and um, sadly, it does happen that um, not just do some people uh, lose faith in this path of practice, and unfortunately, it does also happen that people end up having a psychotic breakdown. And so, so there's a science to this journey, the spiritual journey that we're on, and it behoves us to really pay close attention at each stage. On the initial surface level, refrain from doing that which is unsuitable and say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm okay, I've got that down. However, what about our speech? Now, it's, uh, it's very much a part of everyday culture these days that it's okay to lie and if we don't inspect it, if we don't really look at what's going on with lying, we might feel like we get away with it. However, what happens inwardly in our own hearts? What's really happening? Even if nobody else finds out about it. Just as if somebody you trusted, somebody you knew well, you caught them lying, you would lose trust have a good feeling about your relationship anymore likewise within ourselves if we know that we are not honest then it builds up a sense of inner stress and inner disharmony or alcohol a lot of a lot of people think that they have got the refraining from doing that which is unsuitable down and yet they're still drinking alcohol What's that all about? Alcohol is the absolute opposite of cultivating awareness, purifying the heart. I was interested to read something in the World Health Organization recently where, I think it was in January of this year, they printed an article talking about how, as far as health goes, there is no safe level of consumption of alcohol. There is no safe level. Alcohol is poison. This is the World Health Organization. There is no safe level. And it even categorized alcohol in group one of the carcinogens, along with asbestos and radiation. And alcohol is a well-recognized carcinogen. It's, it's poison. And yet, generally speaking, it's consumed in huge quantities. And people poisoning themselves. What's going on on that level? So even on that course level, a lot of people still need to pay attention to what it means to refrain from doing that which is unsuitable. And then on a more refined level, refrain from doing that which is unsuitable. For many people, when they start practicing meditation, they bring with them 
uninspected conditioning, myself included. It took me many years before I recognized the degree to which I was caught up in compulsively taking sides all the time, what these days I refer to as a compulsive judging disorder. I didn't even realize it was happening, and yet it was causing a huge amount of trouble. I meet people who've been meditating sometimes for decades, and they talk about their practice in very self-critical ways, even though they might be making a lot of good effort, very sincere effort, putting in time and attention and commitment, and yet when you listen to the way they talk about the practice of intensely self-critical, just because they don't have good enough samadhi or, or they haven't attained the levels of insight they feel that they should have, they treat their effort with disrespect and struggling with being at ease with themselves. And if I pointed out to them that it sounds like there's this compulsive judging going on, they, as I was also, are genuinely shocked. It's so common, it's so normal that when we get educated into identifying as our discriminative intelligence, it becomes lodged right in there with a sense of self. I am as good as I can discriminate. When that's just not true, we don't need to be discriminating all the time. What about awe or or opening up to the mystery of life? Or just devotion, adoration? What about these qualities? That doesn't require discriminative intelligence. However, often it's the case that we overly identify with the discriminating aspect of our mind. So the compulsive judging disorder is something that I would suggest is definitely unsuitable and we need to learn to refrain from it. How do we learn to refrain from it? Well, we study it. We watch it. My recommendation is that if you feel that's what's going on in your case, that after years of practice you're still taking sides for and against yourself, then just spend some time every day sitting, doing nothing in particular, and just watching until this, I should be, there it is, that's it. I shouldn't be, there it is, that's it. When that voice appears in the mind, we listen to it, maybe we feel what it feels like in the body, in our shoulders, and chest and our belly, there's a a judgment, a resistance. It's wrong. I am wrong being this way. I shouldn't be confused. I shouldn't be unhappy. I should be more successful. I should be more impressive. And then if we start to notice it, what's likely to happen next is I shouldn't be shoulding. And we're judging the judging mind. And this wonderful teaching that we have of disciplined attention, of just watching, exercising the discipline of attention, of sati, to just watch it, just watch it. Keep falling back, keep falling back, until maybe this letting go happens. You don't have to judge the judging mind. The judging mind is just like a cloud that passes across the sky. It's just one aspect of who and what we are. 
letting go happens. That's a more subtle level of refraining from that which is unsuitable. So paying attention to this very first line, not bypassing it too quickly. And then the second line of cultivating that which is wholesome. Kusalasa Upasampada. On the obvious surface level, well, we all know about the value of, of uh, such wholesome qualities as forgiveness. However, can we do it if somebody dismisses us and, and, or maybe treats us in a way which we feel hurt by? Are we able to just let it go and forgive them or do we harbour resentment? Well, we obviously value the virtue of forgiveness. However, cultivating it is something else. And gratitude. We, we recognise that it's a beautiful quality. However, do how much time do we spend on actually feeling ungrateful, like complaining about things, mm. when in fact we maybe have so much and and yet we forget to be consciously grateful. Generosity. Again, we recognize it, we, we see it in other people and admire it, it's beautiful. However, how often do we really enjoy the benefit of a heart of generosity acting on that impulse, the spirit of generosity? I always find it inspiring when sometimes people turn up in the monastery and talk about wanting to join the monastic community and and the way they express it is is that they they want to be able to support the community they want to be able to serve the community and and I always kind of go oh what a relief because there is that tendency and there are sometimes people who turn up who all they want to do is take and that's really unfortunate not just because it makes living with them more difficult. However, they're not going to benefit. Yeah. When when we give, when we're generous, we engage with. You know, like if you want to develop a friendship with somebody, you give them a well. Maybe you start by giving them some praise or appreciation, and then maybe you, and give them a gift. When we give, we engage with, we participate with, and when people come to the monastery empty-handed, or, and all they want to do is take. Well, it's not just unpleasant to be with such people, it's also sad for them that they're not going to be necessarily engaged with the spiritual community. So generosity, even on a surface level, is something that probably most of us can pay attention to and, and upgrade. And then on a more subtle level, cultivating that which is wholesome, there's a, a need to pay attention to the quality of our understanding or our, our spiritual education. Sometimes it's the case that people come across the Buddha's teachings and, and, and they think they, they, their view of it, their understanding of it, is that it's a, a mental exercise. Uh, a meditation technique. You've got to exercise control, and since 
most personalities these days, given the way uh, society is, most of us are, are all some variation on being a control freak. And we, we actually exercise our control freakery in meditation and, and control our breathing, and control our thinking, and we love this mindfulness exercise because it, it uh, encourages us to do more of that. And that level of understanding of Buddha's teaching is very initial. Right? Yes, it's true to be able to exercise a degree of control is very important. However, there's much more to the Buddha's teachings than just meditation technique. So paying attention to study is very important. How well do we understand what the Buddha really taught? Not just picking up a meditation technique or a, a few superficial ideas about what the Buddha taught. Rather really paying attention, making sure that we have a, a good level of understanding. If we don't pay attention, then we can come from a perspective of misunderstanding. Like, for instance, the idea that the Buddha's teaching is about becoming more happy. The idea that Buddhism is another form of, of New Age religion. And then what we can expect and look forward to is becoming more happy. And that's definitely not the case. The Buddha didn't teach that the, the four noble truths, the first noble truth there is happiness. The second noble truth is there's a cause of happiness. The third noble truth is there's a realization of unshakable happiness. The fourth noble truth is there's a path to the realization of unshakable happiness. As we all know, what the Buddha taught the four noble truths is there is suffering. There is suffering, there is dukkha, and there's a cause for suffering. In other words, this level of understanding invites us to recalibrate our attitude towards our experience of life. It's often the case that when we experience dukkha, when we experience pain, whether it's physical pain like cracking your elbow against the doorpost or something, or whether it's emotional pain like disappointment. It's very normal that we perceive it as something going wrong. Oh, that doorpost shouldn't have been there, or I shouldn't have hit it, or, or that person shouldn't have said that unpleasant thing to me, or I shouldn't be having this experience of disappointment. And it's very, very normal when we experience dukkha that we resist it. That's how our normal response to dukkha is to say it shouldn't be this way. And what the Buddha is saying is that through not understanding dukkha that we stay caught up in it. And so we need to reconfigure our understanding. We need to look really deeply and cultivate an accurate understanding, cultivate a wholesome appreciation of the Buddha's teachings, not just an initial interpretation according to our preferences. And this does require the recalibrating our view of dukkha. When we feel disappointed, when we don't get what we want, when somebody says something to us saying, no, you can't have that, and we feel upset, do we know how to meet that? Can we really meet that? Or do we just miss the feeling that arises in our hearts, the feeling of disappointment and sadness of not getting our own way, 
and then the energy goes up into the head and starts going round around her. He's like this, and she's like that, and I do this, and the world's like this. When's it ever going to end? And we have this overreaction to just a small moment of disappointment. Well, our initial limited level of understanding of the Buddha's teachings means that we don't even recognize that what we're dealing with there is not just a small moment of fairly inconsequential disappointment. What's happened is we've opened up to our backlog of denied disappointment. All of us are carrying around with us a massive burden of denied dukkha. Because most of us, again, didn't get a good enough level of psychological and spiritual education when we were young. We weren't taught that life hurts and we need to live through the hurt and understand the hurt and get the message that means that when we understand it, we can let go of the hurt. We don't get taught that. We get rather we get taught how to distract ourselves or to lie to ourselves or to pretend that we're not hurt when we are. And we have all these habits of distraction and so we don't really get the message and, and it, it becomes so much a part of the I, my view, my relationship to life, my personality is equal to my strategies for avoiding suffering in many cases to a large degree. So cultivating that which is wholesome does require that we really pay close attention to how well educated, how well informed we are with regards to the Buddha's teachings. Do we understand that we need to completely reconfigure our attitude towards dukkha so that we see it as a message? And when I feel rejected by somebody and I find that pain in the chest is intolerable and so we push it down into the belly and go up into the head, if we keep doing that, then we build up our backlog of dukkha and life becomes more and more painful as we go on. Or do we have the preparation of disciplined attention to be able to meet that feeling of feeling rejected, including the backlog of old denied feelings of having been rejected in the past and say, yes, welcome, Ajahn Dukkha. Dukkha is what's teaching us. Welcome, Ajahn Dukkha, please teach me how to let go. If we have that attitude, well then we're cultivating that which is wholesome. And then the third line, continuing down again, purifying the heart. This is, this is the real work. Hopefully we've done the preparation, which I like to refer to as self-aligning, going by what the Buddha talked about in the Mahamangala Sutta, the discourse on great auspiciousness. Towards the end of this discourse, the Buddha talks about the profound realization into actuality, into truth, and experiencing complete liberation, Nibbana. That's towards the very end. Before that, there's eight verses, eight stanzas, where the Buddha is talking about aligning the self rightly aligning, rightly aligning oneself, aligning oneself with true principles. That is building up, paying attention to these skills of refraining from that which is unsuitable, cultivating that which is good. So then when the self is rightly aligned and balanced, then yes, we can give ourselves maybe into 
the challenging work of the purification of the heart. The image the Buddha gave on this is uh, like purifying gold. Gold, when it's first excavated, is full of all sorts of impurities, all sorts of dross. And how do you purify it? You you smelt it. You put it in the furnace and you boil it that's a lot of heat and that's the case with practice we put ourselves under pressure and then the heat comes up, the resistance comes up the commitment to my way of doing things becomes visible so this is the purification of the heart involves a lot of frustration sometimes when people come to join the monastery and and their parents are asking them, what are they doing going to join the monastery? And I, I tell them, I say, tell your parents that you're doing a course in applied frustration. They're not going for a picnic and not choosing an easy option. This is, But this exercise of applying frustration or allowing ourselves to bear with that which is really difficult is for this purpose. It's for the purpose of seeing the self-delusion. Self-delusion is a is a pollutant in awareness. The Buddha didn't struggle. We struggle because of what? Because we don't understand this impulse. When the passions flare up, I don't get my way. What is that? That's the self-delusion. What is the purification? The purification is bearing with it, feeling it, really feeling it, really, really meeting it. Remember, again, the Buddha's teachings and establishing a balanced discipline of attention, the Maha Satipatthana Sutta. The very first part of that is is paying attention to the body, so feeling the consequences of our heedlessness, of our unawareness in the body, not missing it and going straight up into the head. That's, again, what we're usually conditioned to do, and think about stuff. We've been taught to do that. The more clever we are on the level of discriminative intelligence, the more valuable we are, the better job we're going to get. That's all approximations, all of the thinking. We need to come back down into the heart and feel what what does it feel like when I don't get my way? And can we bear with that? The bearing with it, even when it feels unbearable, no judgment, not being fooled by the compulsive judging disorder, hopefully having dealt with that, and just really bear with the raw feeling, interested, trusting. And then once again, the, the last line of this brief stanza, this is the teaching of all the Buddhas. And thank you very much this evening for your attention.